Hi, I'm Bernard Leung and you may know me as the executive who wants to master the 48 laws of power, the 33 strategies of work and the art of seduction and in my spare time, I want to probe the laws of human nature for business and management. You're listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business, technology and media in Asia. And today I have one of my favourite authors, Robert Greed, the author of The Laws of Nature, 48 Laws of Power, 33 Strategies of War, Mastery, The Art of Seduction and The 50th Law with 50 Cent. Welcome, Robert, and it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Bernard. My pleasure. Yes, and the story of how I started reading your book was a friend recommended The 48 Laws of Power to me. And during that year when I was doing my PhD in Cambridge, I read The 48 Laws of Power every night like a storybook, like a parable. Is this Cambridge in England or Cambridge, Massachusetts? Yes, Cambridge in England. Yeah. Oh, wow. Very exciting. So I know you started as a scholar in the classics first, and I would actually want to start to get my audience to know you better. How did you start your career? Well, you know, after college, I knew that I wanted to be a writer. So my whole quest was to figure out what kind of writing best suited me. So out of college, I traveled a a bit, and then I ended up in New York, and I worked in journalism for various magazines. And I didn't think that 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 wasn't a good fit. I didn't really like it. And then I traveled some more and I did all kinds of jobs and I tried writing novels and such. And that didn't work. I wasn't able to make a living that way. And then I came back to Los Angeles, where I'm from, with the idea that I would work in Hollywood, perhaps as a screenwriter. Maybe that would be the proper fit. And it ended up it wasn't the proper fit. So here I was, 36, 37 years old. And it was looking like I wasn't going to find my way in life. My parents were beginning to get very worried about me. I hadn't quite figured out what it was I was meant to do. I knew I was to be a writer, but what was I going to write? And then I met this man who was a book packager. We were in Italy at the time, and he asked me if I had any ideas for a book. And all of my experiences with people in offices and all these kind of difficult work circumstances I had been through, they all came to me in that moment. It must have been very inspired. And I sort of improvised an idea that turned into the 48 Laws of Power. He was very excited by my pitch, and he offered to help pay me to live while I wrote part of the book, and then he would sell it for me. And so that was the start of my career, basically writing these books. And, you know, to me, the lesson here, the moral of the story, is that I never gave up. I kept trying to figure out what I was I wanted to write. I kept gaining skills in journalism, learning how to run under a deadline, in Hollywood, how to create something dramatic. And then by the time this gentleman came to me and asked if I had an idea, I was really prepared. I was ready for this great opportunity. So there was definitely luck involved, but it was the right moment for me. And for me, when he gave me that chance to write that book, it was like, I better make this succeed because this is my last chance in life. This is, this is it. I either make this book happen or I'm going to be a loser the rest of my life. Wow. So I'm pretty curious because you talk a little bit that it inspired you to write The 48 Laws of Power. What is the inspiration that got it to come together? And what is the lesson that you really want your reader to understand from the book? Well, what inspired it was a lot of my experiences. I read a lot of history. You know, I read a lot about various periods in history like Renaissance Italy like ancient Greece, you know, different periods that excite me. And I had this idea that 
what I read about is kind of timeless. I might be working for a for some executive in Hollywood, but what he does and how he acts is so much like things that I was reading about in the books of Machiavelli, stories of Cesare Borgia. And I had this idea that nothing has really changed. Yes, we're less violent than we were a thousand, two thousand years ago, but we're just as manipulative, we're just as Machiavellian as people were in the past. And I wanted to express that in a book. A lot of self-help books, they kind of paint a picture of the world that I think isn't real. My experience was in the work world, people are very political. They have their egos. They're not necessarily honest and sincere. They can tell you that they like you, that they love your ideas, but they're not being truthful. It's a very tricky, difficult environment often in the work world. But nobody was writing a book that talked about this. Everyone made out as if, you know, as if it was this sort of heavenly, angelic world in the work world. And I was really kind of angry. I wanted to expose all of the nasty, dirty stuff that I had witnessed in all of my jobs to show that this is it's not all dirty and nasty and not all the laws are bad, you know. Uh, always say less than necessary. There's nothing evil about that law. It's total common sense. But a lot of these things are never discussed in self-help books, and I wanted to be the one to expose them. So that was really what inspired me. And what I wanted readers to get out of this was to don't be so naive, to don't necessarily judge the people around you by how charming they are, by their appearances. Be warier. Be aware that there are people in the, out in the world who are sharks, who are vultures, who will steal your ideas, who will manipulate you, who will spy on you, posing as a friend, who will turn against you. There's a lot of that out there. It's not everyone, for sure. I just wanted readers to not be so naive, because when I had started out in the work world, like in Hollywood, I was actually quite naive. Mm. I wanted to tell you how actually your book have helped me to identify a person to work in a partnership once. So he's also one of my guests on the show now. He's the CEO of a digital healthcare company. So the story was that we were both at loggerheads working on a project between Cambridge University UK and MIT 50K. And at first we were arguing against each other. So he came by to Cambridge to meet me. And then during we were having a beer and a drink, we suddenly talk about your book, 48 Laws of Power. Uh-huh. And what happened was I had an interpretation of the book and I asked him, so what do you think about the 48 Laws of Power? And my friend Cole told me that, Brady, when I read 48 Laws of Power, I don't think about using them. I'm thinking of just how I observe people and make sure I'm defended against that. And that was exactly the same way how I have interpreted the book. And through that, conversation, we actually started working together, understood each other much better and become lifelong friends. And I thought that story is how I actually learned from your first book. Wow, I'm very honored. Uh, you, you owe me some shares in your company. <laughs> yes, I'm just kidding. Yeah, that's, that's a great story. And it's very true. You know, I'm not telling you to go out there and crush your enemy totally, but just be aware that that's the mentality of a lot of big companies you know, that's how Google and Microsoft and Amazon have gone to the position where they're in. They don't accept any kind of competition. They're out there to crush their rivals, their enemies totally. You're going to find these dynamics in business all the time. 
And I want you to be aware and, and to help you in your defense against people like that. So I'm very happy to hear about you and your friend. I think that's, that's how I use the book. So are you surprised by the book's popularity with the business community when it was first launched? I wasn't surprised by the popularity of the book like on Wall Street, where it had became quite a success. Because, you know, clearly that these are environments where people can be very manipulative. There's a lot of power at stake, you know, and it's, it's a rough and tumble world. But I didn't expect the success that I have in culture. So, for instance, with hip-hop artists and the music industry and all of the African-American entrepreneurs who were getting into hip-hop, the book became extremely popular among them. They used it as sort of their Bible, as sort of their primer. I wasn't prepared for that. That was quite a surprise for me. No, but I designed the book to be for everyone. You know, who doesn't have to deal with power? I remember when the book first came out, I was in Washington, D.C. on a book tour, and this woman came running up to me. It was at, forget what it's called, Radio Free America, or whatever they call that. It's a bureaucracy in Washington. And she came up to me and almost was whispering and saying, you know, Robert, I can't believe how perfectly you described the world here in Washington, bureaucracy, exactly what goes on. <laughs> and I had people in universities and academia come up to me and tell me the exact same thing. Like they said, oh, you must have been writing this book for people who work in academia. And then somebody in the nonprofit world that said the same thing to me over and over again. And I consider that means the book was a success because I intended it to be relevant to no matter what environment you, you found yourself in. One thing I really enjoyed about your book is it combines all the twists of philosophy that has gone over the mankind in different ages. For example, Machiavelli, The Prince, Balthazar, The Oracle of Worldly Wisdom, and all the other books that came along. And then you basically condensed them into one concise book. Yeah. Whether it's for the 48 Laws of Power, the 33 Strategies of War, I often enjoy the style of how you presented your books with the principle followed by the story that illustrate the principle. Yeah. Does it mean that stories are the best way to explain very difficult concepts such as power, leadership, and mastery to your readers? Yes, I expose all of my secrets about writing in a chapter in the 33 Strategies of War. I can't remember if it's chapter 30 or 31 about communication, and I explain why I write the books the way I do and what I learned from Machiavelli himself. But basically the idea is I'm trying to seduce the reader. I'm trying to get the reader to enter my world, to enter my spirit, so that my way of thinking becomes your way of thinking. And in order to do that, I have to entertain the reader. I have to tell stories. Because when you tell a story, their minds open up. They're not so defensive. They're excited. I try to tell them in a way that's surprising and interesting, in which you're going to learn a lesson. It's going to be fun, but you're also going to learn about something from history. So I think a lot of books fail because they're not entertaining. I'm constantly thinking of my audience. I'm constantly thinking, what's going to keep Bernard's interest in this book? Is he going to get bored on this page? Is this story not going to be relevant to his life? On and on. And how can I hook them into my book? So I'm very strategic in that way, and I know how to use language in a certain way where I try to create strong language, where I'm speaking with a voice of authority so that you trust me that I know what I'm talking about, but not that I go too far with that. But I've created a style of writing that's very conscious 
where I'm literally putting the ideas of the art of seduction into practice. I want to seduce the reader into reading this book and to absorbing it deeply in their mind. Because my goal is you don't just read this book and go away and go, okay, that was interesting. I want you to go away from my books going, man, I'm never going to look at people again the same way. You've changed how I look at the people in my office, etc. That's my goal. And so I'm very strategic in that. Mm. And also the use of historical examples, it also gives the reader a very detached, like it happened maybe many, many years ago. So is that why you always pick stories that a little bit further away to illustrate that the principle is actually the same? Maybe the history doesn't really repeat, but it rhymes in that sense. Yeah, very much so. And, and not only do I choose things from history, but I choose things from all cultures around the world. So I'm personally very, very interested in Asian strategies. I have been for many years. You know, Sun Tzu's Art of War is one of my all-time favorite books, as well as Musashi's Book of Five Rings. But there are many, many other great Asian strategists, and I find Asian strategy and ways of thinking, particularly when it comes to strategy, very superior to the Western way. So I wanted, from very early on, from the 48 Laws of Power, I was very careful to include examples not only from ancient Greece, but from ancient China, from early Japan. I included in the Three Strategies of War stories of Zulus and their style of fighting warfare, stories from African Americans, Native Americans, etc. So not only is it all time periods that give it a kind of classic feel, but all cultures. Because if I'm writing a book about human nature, for instance, my new book, and all my stories and examples are just from white men from the 21st century, 20th century, you're going to go, well, that's not human nature. That's just a very thin slice of history. I've got to throw out my net as wide as possible. So I give the reader the idea that I'm covering all aspects of history, all periods and all cultures. Mm. Before we get to the main subject of the day, I just only have one last question. What would be the most interesting life lessons that you can share with my audience based on your experience after writing these books, after thinking about human nature? Well, you know, we're a social animal. Our success depends on how we get along with the people around us. And you can't just be brilliant at finance or know business really well. You have to know people, their psychology, their behavior, what motivates them. And you have to be excited by this subject. And I've done a lot of consulting with people in business, CEOs. I was on the board of directors of a publicly traded company. And a lot of these leaders are brilliant in their field, but they don't understand people. They make the wrong hire. They hire a partner who's actually the worst person they could hire because it's someone they think that they like. They're thinking about friendship, etc. And so the most important skill you can develop is social and political skills and the ability to read people and understand their character so that you're not just judging people by what they present, by the masks that they wear, by their appearances, but you're able to see into them and see through them and judge whether they're people who work hard, who can learn from criticism, who can withstand stress. So the biggest skill you can ever develop is your knowledge of people. And there are not a lot of books written about that. And it's not something people study in the university. You have to make a real effort to get to that point. So, which comes to the main subject of the day, which is your new book, The Laws of Human Nature. 
And I want to ask you this because I've read the 48 Laws of Power and then I progress all the way to 33 Strategies, the Art of Seduction, the 50 Law, then finally to Mastery. And it feels that this book, it seems like the accumulation of everything that is coming. It did felt that way as your reader. How do you decide to write this book then from your perspective? Well, it originated because in Mastery, I had a chapter on what I was just telling you about. This is a chapter on social intelligence. And the idea in Mastery was, I'm trying to teach you how to become a master in your field, how you can become kind of a Da Vinci or the Michael Jordan in whatever field you're in and become very creative. But I wanted to include a chapter on social skills because, as I said earlier, you can't master your field if you're terrible with people. You will just simply cause problems left, right, and center. You'll get in your own way. So I wrote that chapter, chapter four in Mastery, and it was very popular with readers. They wrote back saying how much they enjoyed that chapter, but they wished that there was more information. They wanted more. And I got the idea that maybe there's a real need for a book that explores this subject more deeply. And that was sort of the inspiration, but you're right. It is the culmination of all my prior thinking. You know, for 20 years, that's all I've been researching is political and social problems among people in various different guises. You know, five long books about that. And I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot in my consulting work. So this new book is sort of the culmination of all of my thinking over 20 years of writing these books. In this new book, what are the major themes that you want to present to the reader and how you make them think about the laws of human nature? Well, I want you to first and foremost realize that you don't really know who you are. You don't understand your own behavior. There are forces inside of you, which is forces that I call human nature, that are pushing you around, that are determining what you think, how you make decisions, the people you associate with. And you're not aware of these forces that are pushing you around and they're causing you a lot of problems because you're not conscious of them. So for instance, you're not aware of how deeply emotions are coloring your decisions. And this is an extremely important lesson for people in business. I looked very closely at the crash of 2008 and all of the other great kind of bubbles in history and it's amazing that all these really, really smart people would get lured into the new form of a bubble, which in this case were these real estate derivative forms of finance that's too complicated for me to even explain. But it's because people are irrational. They were guided by their emotions. They saw other people making a lot of money, and they went in like a herd of cows going, oh, I don't want to be missing out. This must be good because other people are doing it on and on and on. They were being highly irrational, but not aware of it. And so think of that. People were making decisions in which their livelihoods were at stake, in which all of the money that they were handling for other people were at stake. And yet they were making decisions based on complete irrational information. They were making terrible mistakes. And so they did not understand something basic about themselves how deeply their own emotions were coloring their decisions. If you look at the decision of the United States government to invade Iraq, here were men like Dick Cheney and others who were really kind of very 
objective people who wouldn't strike you as being emotional. And yet they came up with a plan that was so incredibly irrational, in which they imagined that the Iraqis would be greeting the American soldiers as liberators. They were totally wrong. Well, you can bet in your decisions now that you're using in your finance or your business that you are facing problems like that, not just irrationality, but other things that I bring up in this book, but you're not aware of them. You're not aware. It's kind of like I'm presenting you with a code book that explains what motivates your behavior and other people's behavior. And you don't have this code book. You're ignoring it. You're operating without proper information about who you are and about other people around you. And I want you to stop being ignorant about some of these basic things about human behavior and kind of ground yourself in real knowledge so you won't fall into these patterns that I see occurring in history. So this is a question that I always have in my mind whenever I read your book. Are the laws of human nature immutable, given that our history keeps showing that we often make the same mistake over and over again, maybe the same in essence, but very different in context? Well, certainly things change. I mean, in ancient Greece, they didn't have the internet. You know, Napoleon didn't have, you know, smartphone to help him on the battlefield. Those things are definitely different. And technology has a definite impact on who we are. So some things have changed. And for sure, statistics have pointed out that we're not as violent as we used to be a thousand, two thousand years ago. Although, of course, wars are just as bloody as they've always been. So there's some context for that argument. But in the general sense, no, we haven't really changed. And think of the logic of this. We were formed over the course of millions of years of evolution. Our brain evolved very slowly in a very particular environment as early humans, where we didn't have language, where we lived in these small groups of 30 people, etc. And the brain that you have in your head right now, Bernard, is pretty much the same size and configuration as, it, as the human brain evolved 50,000 years ago in circumstances that are completely different from what we're facing in the world today. And so certain tendencies that we have are built into the human brain, and no amount of technology will change that. So to give you an example, the human brain operates by comparison. That's how we process information. Our eyes, our brain receives some stimulus, and the only way we can make sense of it is by comparing it to another piece of information. But as a social animal, the same thing occurs with people. We are constantly comparing ourselves to other people, to what they have, to their status, to how much more money they have, to how much better their families are, to how their careers are measuring up to our careers. This is an extremely human tendency. Primates, even chimpanzees have this. Our early ancestors suffered very deeply from envy in the tribe where people were comparing themselves. This is a trait that's bred into the human brain by the way we think. And if you look on social media, envy and the idea of comparing yourself to what other people have has never been more rampant, never been more heated than in the world because we're all so aware of what other people have. Social media is just an instrument that only increases human tendency towards envy. So here you take a trait that evolved hundreds of thousands of years ago and you see it in action in the most sophisticated form of technology ever invented. 
And that shows you very clearly how the most primitive aspect of human nature is still very deeply influencing our behavior in the present. It's interesting because the internet was created to level the playing field. But what is now happening is that because human nature itself tends to move us towards what you mentioned, like for example, MV and even disinformation and all that. Do you see that technology is actually an amplifier rather than an enabler for us to break out the laws of human nature? Well, I talk in the book how inventions in the past often start off in a way that is kind of noble and endearing, and then slowly human nature takes over. Originally, the telephone was invented as a way to get in touch with family members that live near you. It was mostly for communication, and nobody in business ever used it. It was never a means for marketing a product or calling people, strangers up. And slowly, human nature kind of changed the nature of the telephone. The internet, when it first evolved, was a very free space where people could connect to one another. And it was very kind of liberating and interesting. But then slowly, the people who I consider kind of toxic, who are more aggressive than others, they began taking over the internet. And now we see social media has become this tool for people to act out all of their darkest impulses, all of their anger and aggression. And so, you know, you can be sure that in a hundred years, a new form of technology will be created in which people will go, look, we finally created something that will really help humanity, et cetera. And human nature will take over and warp and corrupt that because that's simply what happens. I mean, you look at something like Bitcoin and the Bitcoin craze, and I was telling people this all the time, who were investing in it. This is just simply going to become a tool for criminals. Just understand how criminals think, how they operate, what they're looking for. All you're creating is this new instrument for laundering money in dirty ways. And it's also a bubble in that it depends on you know, other people being interested in it for constantly raising the price, etc., don't be so irrational and falling for something like this. But technology, you know, is a tool. It could be used for something great or brilliant or beautiful, or it could be used for some dark purposes. And unfortunately, those elements in human nature that are darker and are, that are kind of under wraps and are waiting to come out, they come out and they use things like the internet for their own purposes. So what are the three laws of human nature in the book that you believe are important for those in business? Well, the first law that I talked about, about irrationality, so to be aware of your own biases and the biases that the brain naturally has. I mean, we all are no understand the idea of confirmation bias, but you'd be surprised how the confirmation bias is affecting you right now in your decisions. You have a plan or a project. And instead of dispassionately looking for the information that will help you, you are looking for the information that will confirm your already great belief that your business will succeed. You have other biases as well that I go through. So understanding how irrationality and how emotions are coloring your decisions are absolutely critical. And I have a chapter that's similar to that on short-sightedness. And in that chapter, I tell the story of the most infamous financial bubble that ever occurred in England, the South Sea bubble in 1720. And I show how we humans 
are not geared to thinking long-term. Our brains operate by looking at what is most immediate before our eyes. And so it's very difficult for us to lift our heads out of the moment and imagine what is going to happen three years, six months, or a year from now. And so real power in this world comes from overcoming this human weakness and stepping back and gaining some perspective on what you're doing. I compare it to climbing on top of a mountain. From the top of the mountain, you can see real true perspective of the world around you, of the landscape around you. And most people are getting a distorted viewpoint of reality because they're looking so deeply at what's just in front of their eyes. And I know when I worked on the board of directors of this company, how much the quarterly report influenced people's decisions. It was almost impossible for the CEO of that company to think longer term, to craft a bigger vision for the company, for what it should be like in a year or et cetera. Then I know you asked for three, but I'm gonna give you four. Young, it's great. One is the chapter on authority, which is how to become a true leader in the world today. And I talk about the concept of authority is very primitive. We humans respond to a particular kind of leader and are actually kind of repelled by another type of leader. And I describe how in the world today, you have to lead from the front. The people that you're leading, you have to show that you respect them, that you believe that they're an important part of the group. They have something to contribute. They're creative. They're not just pawns for you to use in your business. And you have to create the proper mood, the proper group spirit by how you lead from the front. It's not simply what you say. It's what your whole temperament, your whole mood, the whole tone of your voice. And the fact that you don't ask people to do things you wouldn't do. You're out there what we call leading from the front. If there's a problem, you're not asking other people to do it. You're going out there and working harder than anybody else. You're fair and you treat people well. You create this kind of proper environment and everything will function beautifully. And I describe in detail how this works. But if you fail in these areas, if you're sitting there, people perceive you as someone who just sits back and makes other people do all the dirty work. If they see that you're not taking responsibility for decisions, you'll create a very dysfunctional group and you'll never realize the source of the problem but it stems from you as a leader in the tone that you set. And the final law is extremely important. It's a chapter I wrote on generations, on the zeitgeist. Your product, whatever you're creating, you have an audience for. You know, let's say I'm writing a book. In my book, I'm intending for millions of readers all around the world to read it. And that audience for your product or whatever it is you're creating we live in a particular moment in history, and there's a spirit of the times, what is known in English as a zeitgeist. It's actually a German word. And that spirit is constantly changing. It's never static. And a lot of it comes from young people, from the younger generations, in this case, Generation Y and millennials. The younger generations are trying to change the world. The older generations are trying to hold on to what we have and be conservative. And this clash and these spirit and this trend of change that is coming up from the younger generations creates a particular mood or spirit in the times. And I compare it to a kind of a wave. And behind that wave, if your product or your book is just ever so slightly 
six months behind that wave, that spirit, it will fail miserably and you'll never know why because you're not connecting to how people feel in the moment. If you're right there with the wave, if you're catching it in the moment, you'll be very successful. But if you can anticipate that wave, if you can think six months or a year down the road, that is where true power lies. And I always tell people about Steve Jobs and the creation of the iPod, which was the great revolution in technology in the early 2000s. It changed and it led to the smartphone and everything. He was a leader who wasn't just thinking about what's available in technology now. He thought of, where are we going to be in a year from now? How are things changing? What are young people like? What is their mood? What do I need to create that will appeal to them? And it's actually a little bit ahead of where they are right now. And he thought of this device that you could hold in your hand, which completely revolutionized technology. So you need to have a very sensitive radar to the spirit of the times, to how things are changing, and to not be stuck in the past. So those would be the four laws. But believe me, if you're in business, I can't think of one law that won't benefit you. Mm. I want to get to the idea of the spirit of the times. It seems that the current geopolitical landscape in the world is starting to shift significantly. People are becoming more nationalistic. They started to prefer populism over facts. Wealth gap disparities are present. How does your book help us to understand the current world as it is now? We take for granted the 80 years of peace that we have since World War II. So how do you think that the laws of nature help us to get a perspective of what is happening now? Well, you know, the perspective is that things don't really change, that there are patterns in history that always seem to recur. We don't see those patterns in the moment, but they've happened before. Not exactly the same. What we're experiencing now in 2019 isn't exactly what people were going through in the 18th century in Europe, but there are some very interesting similarities or to ancient Rome and the United States right now. And the pattern is we reach a point where the old values, the old ideas and concepts start to die. People can't relate to them anymore. They're not relevant to the technology, to how young people are thinking. And the world needs something new. We need change. And in that moment, before there is like a revolution, people who study generations say that it's like every 80 years or so, we enter this major crisis where we go through incredible change in values and how we look at the world. And perhaps the last one occurred in the 1930s with all the tremendous crises and how we emerged after World War II. And they speculate that we're about to enter something like that again. We're, we're kind of in a crisis where people don't know what to believe in anymore. They don't believe in the old political system. They don't believe in the old political parties. They're looking for something new that relates to them personally. And they feel alienated from the kind of global environment that technology has created. And so they're going to rebel and there's going to be a profound crisis leading to a revolution. This has happened over and over and over again. It's not new. It's a pattern built into human behavior. I explain why this pattern occurs in the chapter that I just mentioned. But get some perspective. And, you know, if I were a politician, it's easy in hindsight to do this. But if I were looking at 2016 and I was running for president in whatever country in the world, if I were the kind of person that I just talked about who's aware of where the world is headed, I would have foreseen this happening. I would have foreseen that globalism 
and technology and how people were, felt like they were losing control over their own local governments, how this would spawn a crisis and a revolution. You could see it a mile away coming. And so this isn't going to last. Something new is going to emerge out of it. So don't despair and think that the world is ending. Such things have happened before. It's actually a very exciting time where something new is in the process of, of coming to life. Mm. This would be my last question. And whenever I read any book of yours, I always wonder if you have additional things to add someday, how are you going to insert it? Like for example, do you ever foresee that there will be additional laws of nature that you want to append into your current book and maybe add an additional chapter so that maybe due to new discovery of probably in psychology, in behavioral economics, which I think you've done a lot in talking about biases in the laws of human nature. How will you do that? Well, people often ask me, what's the 49th law of power? Are you going to write the 49th law? And I go, no. The 49th law of power is that all 48 are extremely accurate and there's no need for a 49th law. You know, I did pretty exhaustive research for many, many years on this subject. I covered all different fields. Yeah, it's possible that in 20 years, neuroscience uncovers some new secret about the human brain that none of us were ever aware of that kind of makes it seem like maybe I was incomplete or that even contradict one of the laws that I've created. I'm open to that. I'm open to the idea that I'm not God, that maybe there is something that I missed. But, you know, people have been thinking and writing about humans for a long time. And scientists have been studying us for a long time. And psychologists have written thousands, millions of pages of books on this subject. So the idea that there's something that we haven't covered I don't believe it. I believe people have already sort of revealed all there is to know about human nature. We've seen it in history. I mean, history is a living laboratory of human nature. You can argue with me all you want, or you could say, well, what about this? What about that? But you look at history and you see these are concrete facts. We can see, you know, what the king of France was like leading up to the French Revolution, and we can deduce certain patterns of behavior from how that French Revolution occurred. And so history is a laboratory of human nature. And there's not gonna be something new in history that occurs unless we destroy the entire planet, which would be something new. But uh, God help us that if we get that far. But nothing new is going to happen. The old Latin expression is there's nothing new under the sun. History goes in these cycles. So we've seen everything. So I really, really doubt that neuroscientists or history or psychologists will uncover something that I hadn't thought of. But if they do, I promise you I'll go back and revise my book. You know, Robert, I think your books will be read by people of generations to come. And I'm very glad to have this conversation with you at this point of history. And when someday that people will still be reading the 48 Laws of Power, the 33 Strategies of War and Art of Seduction, and of course, the Laws of Human Nature and Mastery. So many thanks for coming. Thank you very much for having me, Bernard. I really enjoyed it. So in closing, I want to ask two questions. My first one is, can you recommend something that have recently made an impact to your work and personal life? A book, movie, podcast or something? Well, somebody turned me on recently to Alain de Botton's podcast on the School of Life. 
It's called School of Life, and I found it very interesting and kind of an interesting resource for things that I'm thinking about now. So I would definitely recommend that. I like to read a lot of books from many different subjects, and there are things going on in neuroscience right now that are really exciting. I think it's the most exciting frontier of all as we get to learn about who we are. And there's some fantastic books being written now about the latest discoveries, the human brain. I'm particularly fond of the neuroscientist Antonio Damasio, but also V.S. Ramachandran, whom I interviewed for my book, Mastery. These are books that have had a big impact on me. I'm sure there's something else, but I can't think of it right now. What was the other question? How can my audience find you? I have an original website that I've kept. It's called Power, Seduction, and War. The and is spelled out. So powerseductionandwar.com. And there you'll find links to my other books, to Mastery, to the 50th Law, to the Laws of Human Nature. There's also a link for emailing me if you'd like to do that as well. And also you'll find links to all my Twitter account, Instagram, and all that other stuff. And I'm very curious, just before we go there, have you ever thought about doing your 48 Laws or 33 Strategies into a podcast storytelling format? I would definitely subscribe to it, Robert. Well, what we have been trying to do is do a dramatic version of these books for television. Ah, that's a good idea. But I've been working on that for 12 years now, and it hasn't happened yet. I have several companies we're trying to develop that. But I am going to start exploring the possibility of doing a podcast. I'm very careful that I don't want to have too much of my time taken up. My main excitement in life is writing books. But I really do enjoy the podcasting world. So I am going to be looking into the possibility. And that might happen in the next six months or so. And you'll be the first person to know. Thank you, Robert. Welcome. You can definitely Google me at Bernard Leung. This show is co-produced by Carol In and myself. And we are found everywhere. Luminary, Spotify, Himalaya, iTunes, SoundCloud, Acast, and everywhere else. You can drop us a comment and your feedback is really vital for us to get better. Once again, Robert, I'm very thankful for this conversation and I look forward to speak to you again in the future. If you have any other new books. My pleasure, Bernard. I'd love to do this again, even before my next book. So anytime, just, just let me know. Thank you. Thank you.